Amen. You can be seated. Take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As you're doing that, do want to say how thankful we are for our brothers and sisters who lead us in singing every week. Uh, Bethany and the Andrews, all three of them. Dave, uh, Kevin Osborne, Sydney, Jess, the sound booth people, Jerry, Megan, uh, see Joseph back there, I know Sam. Am I missing? Who else does stuff? Am I missing anyone? Anyway, thank you to all of you guys. Um, there's so many people who serve our church in so many different ways, people teaching kids, people you know, serving, and, and so we're thankful for those who lead us in music. Also thankful for our uh, elders, our lay elders, our bivocational elder for their leadership in our church and in the service every single week in our liturgy. The, uh, the elders that are not named Kevin McGuire or Alex Loganow will be preaching to us, leading the church in the ministry of the word for the month of August and the first Sunday of September. We love uh, this series every single year as our elders uh, shepherd us in the preaching of the word, and so you'll want to be here for that starting the first Sunday in August. This week and next week, we will finish our summer series, quick series on a practical theology of the church, and then starting in August, uh, Pastor Zach will be bringing the word to us. I'm not going to say it, okay, but Pastor Zach did let me know that if you were in class this morning, there's a little hint, he's, he's got some more info for you on something we talked about. So be here in two weeks for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This morning as we consider giving of our tithes and offerings together. For, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We will read verse 9. The Holy Spirit says this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. We ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth, and we confess your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your Son, who is the Word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who spoke through the prophets and the apostles to give us your word. Amen. A Baptist preacher had just finished his sermon and proceeded to the back of the church for his usual handshakes and greetings as the congregation left the church. And after shaking a few adult hands, he came upon a seven-year-old, a son of one of the deacons of the church, and the preacher said, good morning, Jonathan. And he reached out his hand to shake Jonathan's hand. And as he was doing so, the pastor felt something in the boy's hand. What's this? The preacher asked. Money, Jonathan said. The preacher answered, oh, I, I don't, I don't, uh, don't want to take your money. And Jonathan had a big smile on his face. He said, the money is for you. Preacher once again said, I, I don't want to take your money, son. 
And Jonathan said, I want you to have it. And after a short pause, Jonathan continued and said, my daddy said that you're the poorest preacher we've ever had. (laughs) And so I want to help you. You know, there's a reason, there's a reason that jokes like this exist. There's a reason that our culture lets out a collective groan whenever a preacher starts talking about money. Oh. I don't know if it's in part because of the collection and abuse of wealth perpetrated by the Roman Catholic Church for over a thousand years, or if it's because of the health and wealth preachers who prey on the poor while flying in their own private jets, or if it's because of pastors who get caught embezzling church finances, whatever the reason, we all cringe when we start to hear preachers talk about money. That's the elephant in the room this morning. That's where we are. That's where we are. At the same time, though, the scripture has a lot to say about money, about how God's people should think about money and about God's expectation of his people to give of their money. We cannot neglect what the Lord Jesus has to say to us in his word simply because other people have abused God's word. This week, again, is week seven out of our eight-week summer series that we've been doing on a practical theology of the church for the months of June and July. We've been looking at the elements of the identity and mission and work of the church. What are the facets, what are the elements that make for a faithful biblical church? We started with the preaching of the word of God. We then looked at the sacraments, uh, church membership, the offices of elders and deacons. Last week, we, Pastor Kevin preached to us on evangelism, and this week we look at the giving of tithes and offerings. The first thing we must see clearly and unequivocally from the scripture is that God requires his people to give of tithes and offerings. There is a mandate in the Bible to give. The first shadows of this principle in the Bible come from the book of Genesis, Pastor Andrew read the first one as he led us in our call to worship from Genesis 14. And in that pericope, we have shadows of both the Eucharist and tithing, if you're paying attention. And Pastor Andrew did sternly request that you pay attention. So I hope that you did. You... You heard, you heard, you saw a glimpse, you saw a shadow of both the Eucharist and of tithing. We we see a shadow of the Eucharist as Melchizedek, this priest king, the king of Salem, celebrates Abraham's victory, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and how does he bless Abraham? With bread and wine. 
Father Abraham then responds to Melchizedek in gratitude by giving a tithe, giving 10% of all that he had to the priest king. That's what tithe means, 10% of all that you have. The next time we see in the Bible this principle, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who is later renamed Israel, has a similar experience in Genesis 28. And that's the text where Jacob has the dream of uh, what Led Zeppelin called the stairway to heaven, the ladder to heaven. And in response to this dream, Jacob worships Yahweh and he says this, Genesis 28 verse 22, of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Again, Genesis 28, 22. So even before, this is twice now in Genesis, even before the law of God is formally given at Mount Sinai, the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob, or Israel, give a tithe. Remember, tithe means 10%. They give a tithe of everything that they have in worship to Yahweh. Scripture here reveals to us that the principle of tithing, the principle of giving 10% of our wealth or income in worship precedes the formal giving of the law. So worship by tithing is a supra-cultural principle. It does not come to Israel, for Israel alone, in the law, it is supra-cultural, like the Sabbath. On the seventh day of creation, Yahweh rested and instituted the Sabbath. So, like the Sabbath, tithing is a supra-cultural principle and practice for God's people. Now, we also see that when the law of God is giving, that given, that tithing is explicitly mandated for the people of God. They are required to tithe, to give 10% of all that they own in worship to the Lord. The book of Leviticus ends with this command. This is Leviticus 27, 30 through 34. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is Yahweh's. It is holy to Yahweh. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to Yahweh. One shall not differentiate between good and bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Again, Leviticus 27, 30 through 34. So God's people here are commanded to give a tithe, to give 10% of all that they have in worship to the Lord. Deuteronomy 14.23 says that God's people must tithe so that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. In 2 Chronicles 31, we see that God's people did not merely give a tithe, but that they tithed from their first fruits. 2 Chronicles 31, 5 and 6. 
As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to Yahweh their God and laid them in heaps. Second Chronicles 31, 5 through 6. So God's people are not only required to tithe, but they are required to tithe of their first fruits. That means that they did not give 10% after they paid their bills and after they spent on whatever they wanted to. To give 10% of the first fruits means that they were to give 10% of their gross income, not their net income. It means before taxes, before bills, before pleasure, God's people gave 10% of their total wealth. In Numbers chapter 18, we see that part of the reason why God's people were to tithe was to support the livelihood of the priests and the Levites. Listen to Numbers 18, 25 through 28. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take away from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to Yahweh, a tithe of a tithe. So quick pause. I know, I, I hate when preachers do that and they make you like look at the Bible and look back up and do that a hundred times, but I got to do it right here. So the, the tithe is like supporting the priests and the Levites, but the priests and the Levites have to tithe of, of the money that they're given too, right? That's what he's saying. Verse 27, and your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the wine press. So you shall also present a contribution to Yahweh from all your tithes, which you receive from the people of Israel, and from it you shall give Yahweh's contribution to Aaron the priest. Again, that's Numbers 18, 25 through 28. The tithes and offerings of the congregation of the people of Israel support the work of those who shepherd and serve God's people in a vocational manner. We see St. Paul recapitulates uh, this command in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Paul wrote this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. That's 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. So elders or pastors in the church, in the new covenant, who preach or teach for a living deserve to be compensated for their time and their effort. Just as the Levites and the priests were compensated for their vocational ministry in the old covenant, the tithes of the church support the work and ministry of the paid elders. After God's people returned from exile, God strongly rebuked Israel, the congregation, for not tithing in Malachi chapter 3. Listen to Malachi 3, 6 through 10. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. 
But you say, how shall we return? Listen. If you weren't listening before, it's okay, I forgive you. Listen, listen now. How shall we return? God says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? This is God's answer. In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation. Then he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Malachi 3, 6 through 10. So Malachi reveals to us not only is tithing a command, but to abstain from tithing is to rob God. God's people ask, how have we robbed you? God replies, in your tithes and contributions. This principle does not change with the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus solidifies and even enhances the practice of tithing for worship. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 19. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, to do away with the law, the law that was written on our hearts in the covenant of works with Adam, the law that was revealed in the Ten Commandments and the Old Covenant. Jesus did not come to abolish that law. Jesus came to fulfill God's law. And Jesus says that the law will never pass away because heaven and earth will never pass away. And Jesus then rebukes anyone who relaxes the law and teaches others to do the same, and Jesus praises those who do God's law and teach others to do the same. And Matthew wrote that down for the church years after Jesus ascended to heaven because that was not just for Israel in the time of Jesus. That was inspired by the Holy Spirit for all Christians in every age. Later in St. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus restates the principle of tithing when he rebukes the scribes and Pharisees with these words. Listen to Matthew 23, 23 through 24. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's Matthew 23, 23 through 24. Similar thing in Luke eleven forty two. 42. So Jesus, who has come here in Matthew to inaugurate his kingdom, to inaugurate the new covenant, this text that we just read from the New Testament, mind you, not the Old Testament, in this text, Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees for tithing while they neglect 
justice and mercy and faithfulness. And what did Jesus say? He said, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what is Christ saying? Jesus is not saying, forget about tithing. That's not in the New Testament. What you really need to focus on is justice and mercy and faithfulness. No, Jesus says these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Christ commands that they ought to have tithed and also sought justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus spoke a lot about our heart attitude toward money. Jesus rebuked the rich young ruler for loving his money more than God. Matthew 19, 6 through 22. Jesus praised the poor widow who gave of all that she had while others were giving out of their abundance. Mark 12, 41 through 44. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, 24. When Paul is giving his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Paul quotes the Lord Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 35. So Jesus, while assuming and, assuming and even explicitly commanding tithing, is upping the ante. We give, and Jesus doesn't, isn't concerned simply with what we give, but with the heart behind the giving. So not only is there a mandate to give, but Jesus addresses our motive to give. You see, the principle of tithing is not abolished in the New Testament. It is, in fact, solidified and even enhanced. In the New Testament, we not only have this explicit restatement of Jesus Christ concerning tithing, but we also have the assumption that God's people will continue to tithe. Just as Abraham and Jacob tithed before the formal giving of the law, God's people continue to tithe after the law is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But the New Testament not only recapitulates the principle of tithing, it enhances it. Jesus does this with all the law, doesn't he? Jesus tells us that not only do we break the sixth commandment when we murder, but also when we hate someone in our heart. Jesus tells us not only do we break the seventh commandment when we commit adultery, but also when we lust after someone to whom we're not married. The New Testament does the same thing with tithing. It's not enough simply to tithe. We must also give with a cheerful heart. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth to give to support poor Christians in other parts of the world. And starting in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, the Holy Spirit says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency... In all times, or in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. So in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Scripture calls us to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully. 
The Holy Spirit is teaching us here that the act of giving is tied to the posture of our hearts when we give. So the New Testament does not abolish tithing here in place of giving whatever you want as long as you do so cheerfully, because we've already seen that the Lord Jesus commands us to tithe. But the New Testament also does not allow for tithing reluctantly or under compulsion. God's expectation in his children's is his, that his children tithe with a cheerful heart. And we have seen over and over and over again in Scripture that our head and our heart and our hands are all intricately tied together. God cares about what we think. God cares about what we feel. God cares about what we do. God wants us to give He wants us to understand why we're giving, and he wants us to do so cheerfully. We have seen the mandate to give in the Bible and the motive, which is giving cheerfully, earlier in this pericope in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we see the meaning of giving, the true and final meaning behind giving. Why, even before the formal giving of the law, did Abraham and Jacob feel compelled to tithe? Why did God explicitly command tithing when he gave his law to his people? Why did the Lord Jesus repeat the command to tithe? The answer is that the meaning behind tithing and giving is grounded in the gospel of Jesus. We read at the start of the sermon from 2 Corinthians 8, 9. I'll read it again now. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It is only when you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can give and you can tithe cheerfully. Because when I use the term faith... I mean three things, the three facets of faith. We quote them often here at Christ Community Church because faith is comprised of knowledge, assent, and trust. The first facet of faith is knowledge. In order to have faith in Jesus, for you to have genuine faith in Jesus, you must receive the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You must know that God is our holy creator and that God created us in his image and that God gave us his law. And you must know that in Adam, we are all born with a sin nature. And as a result, we all sin. You broke God's law. I broke God's law. Pastor Brett led us in the confession earlier. And we all said these words together, that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. That we have sinned by what we have done, and that we have sinned by what we have left undone. That we have not loved God with our whole heart. That we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. You know why that language is so beautiful, and so useful, and so helpful, and so important? Because that covers everything, right? Thought, word, and deed. Done and undone. Love God, love neighbor. We've broken all of it in every single way possible. We are guilty. We are guilty. 
We are sinners. We have broken God's law. That's the bad news. But the good news is what we call the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Earlier, Pastor Zach led us in the Nicene Creed, which says, For us men, men meaning mankind, for us and for our salvation, God sent his Son, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, took on humanity in his incarnation when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a truly human life. He never sinned. Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 2.22 says that Jesus never sinned. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly and righteously. Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus never sinned by what he did or by what he left undone. Jesus always loved God with his whole heart. Jesus always loved his neighbor as himself. And this is what we call the active righteousness of Christ. Jesus was actively righteous in our place. Jesus kept the law for us. Jesus never sinned for us. It is then on the cross that we see what we call the passive righteousness of Christ. Jesus died as our substitute, the substitute for the elect, paying the penalty for sin given in the covenant of works. The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. That's why Jesus had to die. On the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath for the sins of his people. And after Jesus died, he was buried. But on the third day, Jesus resurrected from the dead. Why? Because God accepted his righteousness. God accepted his righteous offering. And so the penalty of death could not hold him. Do you understand? The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Jesus is the only person who lived who never ate of the fruit of the tree. And so death could not hold him. To have faith in Jesus, you must know this good news. The Bible does not teach universalism. If you do not know this, you are not a Christian. You do not have faith, and this is why we, it's why we believe in evangelism, right? Go back and check the sermon from last week. Knowledge is the first facet of faith, but knowledge of the gospel falls short of saving faith. You must also assent to the validity of these truth claims. It is not enough to know the facts about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You must also acknowledge that this story is true. You have to think it, it really happened. You have to believe it's real. You must believe it. But even those who assent don't necessarily have genuine faith. There are people who have lived in history and who live even now, maybe even some of you, that have knowledge. You can convey everything I said about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Some of you even have assent. You think that's true. But you're not trusting. You don't trust Jesus. And trust is the final facet of faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. You must transfer your trust to Jesus alone. 
You must place the full weight of your hope, of your salvation, of your righteousness on who Jesus is and what Jesus did alone. The gospel beckons you to trust that on the last day, and if if you were in class this morning, we talked about this, Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead. Pastor Zach led us in that confession earlier. That's going to happen. Jesus is going to return and judge every human who's, who's ever lived on every thought, every word, every deed. Trusting in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, means that you are clinging with all of your life to the fact, to the promise that God made that when you stand before King Jesus and he judges your life, every thought, word, and deed, that you will be saved, that you will be forgiven, and that you will be granted eternal life, not because of who you are and not because of what you've done, but because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus did. And if you think the gospel is anything more or anything less than that, you don't believe the gospel. That is the good news. The good news is that Jesus did it for you and that your trust is in him alone. If you have genuine faith, it will be made manifest by your repentance. To repent means to confess that you are a sinner and to turn from your sin. It means to turn away from living for anything other than Jesus and to live for Jesus alone. And if the Holy Spirit has worked regeneration in your heart, if you have genuine faith, it will be revealed by your repentance and by your obedience. Your repentance and your obedience do not save you but they reveal that you have been saved, that God has given you the gift of faith. And so I implore you, even now, if if you're honest enough with yourself to say, that's not true of me, I am not trusting in Jesus, I have not repented of my sins, I do not care to obey God's law, I implore you, repent and believe the gospel. There is nothing more important in your life, in your family, in this country, in this world, in all of human history. There is nothing more important than this good news. It is the very reason for which the world was created. It's the reason you exist. God created you to be satisfied in him alone. Man, just go ask our third through fifth graders, what is the chief end of man? They'll tell you. Because Shane and Don are doing the Lord's work down that hallway. They'll tell you. To know God. To glorify him. To live for him. He created us for this. We are alienated him from him because of our sin. And it's only through Jesus 
that we can live the way we were created to live. If you are a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, that means you want to obey Jesus. The Holy Spirit has indwelt you. He's changed your heart and you want to obey Jesus. You want to repent of your sins. You want to obey God's law and you want to cheerfully give. You'll want to tithe. You'll want to give of 10%. And some of you are thinking, well, I just can't afford that. Let me ask you, what cost is too high to obey Jesus? This is the same logic of young couples or even widowed couples who choose to live in sexual sin instead of getting married because then they can't meet their arbitrary financial goals by obeying Jesus. It's the same logic used by people who refuse to have children for the purpose of meeting arbitrary financial goals. It's the same logic used by people who choose to work every Sunday and neglect the means of grace so that they can meet their arbitrary financial goals. So let me ask you again, what cost is too high to obey Jesus? What is your conscience worth? The word of God commands that we give cheerfully. Some of you say, I can't afford to, and I I feel like I have to ask you, can you afford not to? Can you afford to live in rebellion to King Jesus? Now listen, I want to be fair. This sermon has been an apology, at least in part, an apology for tithing. Tithing, giving of 10% of your gross income, has been the belief and practice of Christians for most of church history. You can read about it all the way in the Didache, that they practice tithing. The Reformed tradition has always taught the principle of tithing. Now, I understand that some Christians, usually Arminian or dispensational, uh, do not believe tithing is required. Some Christians believe that the New Testament only teaches cheerful grace giving and a tithe is not expected. And maybe you believe in that too. Uh, if you do, I disagree with you. The Reformed tradition disagrees with you, but that is a legitimate biblical position. This is what's not a legitimate biblical position not giving at all. We can disagree about the amount and how the Bible teaches the amount. If you don't give, you are living in sinful rebellion to King Jesus and you should repent. This is the elephant in the room, right? He's the one who's getting paid. I ch- how many verses did we read today? I'm just the messenger. This is God's requirement. I'm not, abs- I, I'm not to abstain. I, I give. Pastor Kevin has to give. We're in sin if we don't. Brett, all the other guys. This is not like you give to us and we get rich. We give in worship. I need to give just like I need to the word, just like I need the bread and the wine, just like I need to sing and pray and fellowship with you all. This is a means of grace. It is worship. The only illegitimate position for a Christian is not to give at all. 
When every one of us joined Christ Community Church, we submitted to the membership covenant. Every time we receive new members, you hear Pastor Brett stand up and read the covenant before the church, and the new members agree to it, and the congregation agrees to submit to the covenant together. I want you to listen to one of the stipulations of the Christ Community Church covenant of membership. It says this, that we will cheerfully contribute of our property according as God has prospered us for the maintenance of a faithful and evangelical ministry among us, for the support of the poor, and to spread the gospel over the earth. When you joined Christ Community Church, you agreed to cheerfully contribute of your property. As God has prospered you for the ministry of the church, for the support of the poor, for the spread of the gospel. And so let me ask you, are you holding up your end of the bargain? Are you giving? And let me encourage you, as one of your pastors, as one of your elders, as one of your shepherds, I want to encourage you from the word of Christ. This is the Bible. It's Jesus' word. When we read from the Bible, it's as if Jesus himself is speaking these words to us. So let me encourage you or rebuke you. If you have not been cheerfully giving, repent and believe. Repent of your sin, of not trusting that God will provide for you when you obey him. Trust Jesus enough to love and obey him more than your arbitrary financial goals. Trust and obey Jesus more than your money. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your heart submitted to your arbitrary financial goals? Or is your heart submitted to King Jesus? Jesus gave all of himself for us. And it is in the gospel that we find the proper motivation to give of our income for the kingdom of Christ and for the mission of the gospel. Christ Community Church for, for my experience as a pastor and as a member and from what I've heard before I was even here, has always been a strong giving church. We thank God that this body of people has always believed what we're preaching this morning. You've, you've given. You've given to support missions. You've given to support pastors. You've given to build this beautiful property so that we could gather and worship you have given. May that continue to be true of us. Kev, what was our median age when we moved in here? 50, 58. It was the median age of the church when we moved in this building. We did the math recently. Our median age now is 34. A lot of you are young. A lot of you weren't trained to give. A lot of you haven't thought about this. 
let me encourage you. Continue this legacy that's been handed down to you. To us. To me. May we give with a cheerful heart. May we be people who give because Jesus gave to us. May we mean these words that we're about to sing as we come to the Eucharist. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void. Father, that you would work salvation in the hearts of those who do not believe and that you would work sanctification in the hearts of those who do. And Father, regardless of whether we subscribe to the biblical principle of the tithe that the Reformed tradition has always taught or whether we embrace the newer teaching of cheerful giving, Father, regardless of those finer theological points, we ask that you would give Christ Community Church a cheerful heart to give. For those of us who have not been giving, Father, we pray that you would work repentance in our hearts. Father, that we would understand that you are the rightful owner of all things and that we are merely stewards of even our own wealth and that we would re respond to your salvation and your provision for us by worshiping you through giving to your mission, to your kingdom, for your glory. Bless us now as we come to the sacrament, as we commune with King Jesus, Father, may we remember and proclaim that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. We pray by his name and in his spirit. Amen. Church, rise now and come to the Eucharist. <laughs>